Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What imperial nostalgia does is to push countries in two directions, either to become more and more isolationist or to become more and more expansionist because it always longs for a lost map of grandeur. And unfortunately, as I'm telling you these things, we are witnessing a terrible war on European continent, a terrible humanitarian catastrophe evolving after the Kremlin, uh, Putin's regime, attacked Ukraine, invaded Ukraine, claiming there was no such thing as an independent Ukrainian identity. So the word I want to talk about today is nostalgia. And I want to talk about both its negative sides and positive sides. But let's go step by step. The word comes to us from its ancient Greek origins, and it's composed of two parts. On the one hand, there's nostos, which means home or homecoming. And on the other hand, there's algos, which means pain or ache. And it is actually a Homeric term. So if you remember Homer's Odyssey, how the hero's journey, the, the, the war, the Battle of Troy, and then years of returning, coming back home, longing for home, yearning for home, I think it's very much at the center of, of Homer's work. And it evolves from there into Latin, um, following the etymology, the pedigree of the word. And by the time we reach 17th or 18th century, it has already acquired this meaning. It is an acute homesickness. I should also mention that there's a Swiss doctor around 17th century who uses the term nostalgia in a very specific context as a disease. Just like paranoia, just like melancholy at the time, um, nostalgia is also regarded as a disease that needs to be cured. So much so that they even think that there's a pathological bone in the human body that needs to be removed. If a doctor can find that bone and take it out of the human body, they can cure the patient of their nostalgia. I also want to mention that often in the pre-modern era, that term, the term itself is used for soldiers who go on lengthy, long wars, battles, without knowing whether they will ever return home. Uh, for instance, when we look at the lives of Spanish soldiers, in the text, in the historical text, there's mention of soldiers suffering from el mal de corazón, right? So that kind of longing. And as a writer, as a storyteller, I can relate to this. I think there's a part of me that understands nostalgia and how it can be triggered by senses, seemingly small moments. As an exile, as an immigrant, I can relate to this. In my writing as well, when I think about Istanbul or in my daily life, you know, you're just walking around, going, going about your own way and suddenly a smell, a flavor, a taste, a song, something triggers and you realize that you carry this longing in your heart. So for me, one of the things that immediately, like a slap, hits me in the face 
in a way, is the smell of roasted chestnuts. I somehow always associate that aroma with Istanbul. So wherever I smell roasted chestnuts in whichever part of the world I might be, to me, it brings back Istanbul to me. So uh, there's a part of me that can relate to the emotional aspect of nostalgia. But at the same time, I also know that it's dangerous to get stuck in nostalgia. You know, if we get stuck in that box, it becomes repetitive. And after a while, it even becomes toxic. So I want to take a step forward in that direction. And I want to talk about imperial nostalgia, which is a very dangerous form of nostalgia that we should all be aware of, in my opinion. Before I get there, however, I want to talk about a poet, uh, a Russian poet, a Russian Jewish poet who was born in St. Petersburg, Joseph Brodsky. He was an intellectual, and like many intellectuals, he suffered a lot. He went through so many hardships. In 1960s, the regime denounced him for being anti-Soviet, for being pornographic, you know, this crime of obscenity, so-called. And he was even, even labeled as a parasite, you know, in the eyes of the authorities. He was sent into exile. He was put in a mental institution. I also should say that his mentor was Anna Ahmatova, another remarkable, extraordinary poet. And maybe one day I will make a full video solely dedicated to the life and to the words of Anna Ahmatova. But coming back to Brodsky, there's a moment in his life when a judge, during one of his trials, the judge, in a very belittling tone, says, you know, who are you? You're not even a poet. Who calls you a poet? You're a pseudo-poet. Who even included you in the ranks of poets? To which Brodsky replies, says, nobody. Who included me in the ranks of human beings? Whoever did that also included me in the ranks of poets. But again, of course, the judge continues to belittle him and says, you, you don't even have a proper education. You, haven't even, you don't even have a proper diploma and all of that. Eventually, eventually, he manages to get out of the country. He becomes an exile. He becomes an American citizen. This is a poet who received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1987. Now, one of the reasons why I mentioned Brodsky's work in this context is because in one of his writings, there's an interesting quote that stayed with me. He says, as someone who has traveled across cultures, he says, the Russians, when things go wrong, the Russians like to blame the government. When things go wrong, Americans like to blame their parents. And the Poles, the Polish people, they like to blame the past. Now, you might agree with him, you might disagree with him. I mean, no offense at all. I think it's an interesting food for thought, you know, whom do different cultures blame or what do they blame when things don't go in the way they want to go. But the reason why I quote this is because I have a feeling if Brodsky were alive today, he might change his quote a little bit. And maybe he might have said, populists everywhere, east, west, north, south, populists everywhere, they have a tendency to blame the loss of an imaginary golden gilded age. So populists everywhere, they have a tendency to blame the loss of an imaginary golden gilded age. In other words, for populist movements, 
nostalgia became an important thing. They often talk about going back in time in order to go forward, which is, of course, very confusing. And also it's an illusion because the way imperial nostalgia remembers history is quite selective. It's deliberately selective. It always talks about this glorious era right, of always victories and triumphs, this sparkling notion of history. But as storytellers, as writers, we do know that the story changes depending on who is telling it and depending on who is not allowed to say a word. So if you ask how that history was like to a woman, to the women, or to the minorities, persecuted minorities, you will get a different answer. The story of the empire will change depending on who is telling it and who is not allowed to tell it. I worry about imperial nostalgia and I see echoes of imperial nostalgia across a vast geography, actually. And I think it affects nations because there's always this talk about how great we were in the past. I see these echoes in many countries that were once upon a time empires from Russia to Turkey, from Hungary to Germany to Great Britain. And of course, at the same time, there's a big difference in terms of whether a country has a proper functioning democracy. Where there's no democracy, where authoritarianism is also on the rise, imperial nostalgia escalates even further, is heightened and becomes even more aggressive, even more toxic. What imperial nostalgia does is to push countries in two directions, either to become more and more isolationist or to become more and more expansionist, because it always longs for a lost map of grandeur. And unfortunately, as I'm telling you these things, we are witnessing a terrible war on European continent, a terrible humanitarian catastrophe evolving after the Kremlin, uh, Putin's regime, attacked Ukraine, invaded Ukraine, claiming there was no such thing as an independent Ukrainian identity. Because that's exactly what imperial nostalgia does, you know, that kind of aggressiveness, that kind, that kind of expansion. I don't think it's a coincidence that wherever we see a heightened imperial nostalgia, we will also observe a rise in ultranationalism, in authoritarianism, but also in homophobia, in sexism, and in xenophobia. So I want to leave you with this thought, if I may. Let us use nostalgia in a positive way, right? Let us honor the beautiful things that it brings to mind in the works of poets, in the works of literature, in a, in a peaceful way. But let us also be aware of the toxic and destructive side of nostalgia, in particular, imperial nostalgia. Just like there's no nostalgia bone in the human body, there's no such thing as a country, any country being exceptional, you know, this exceptionalism, or a country being superior to others. There's no such thing. That's an illusion. The truth is, we're all interconnected and we're all part of the human race. So